Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction. This is a podcast of the novel McDowell by William H. Coles, author of award-winning stories and novels, and the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Let's continue with the final episode of McDowell. Chapter 59 By late summer in New Orleans, Hiram plays rhythm harmonica and drums mostly on the street as backup. He doesn't think the interest in finding him is intent now, and he feels comfortable playing solo again. He stakes out at Jackson Square. How Gatemouth Willie Brown Met Hiram McDowell Gatemouth Willie Brown coughed into a microphone on a boom from a chrome stand with a black-painted metal base and exhaled smoke he'd inhaled from a lit cigarette in his left hand. His right hand gripped this battered Gibson electric guitar by the neck to keep it steady. A small portable speaker amplified an eerie, inhuman sound. He sat alone on the bench in Jackson Square on the Cabildo side. The gray sky blocked the sun and tricked a light, misty drizzle, more relief from the heat than a bother. Tourists were sparse, and he quit playing until he might gather a crowd, make a few music lovers put something in his Café de Mon coffee can for playing something they thought was New Orleans, special for them. But it wasn't much New Orleans jazz he played. It was mostly Delta, some folk tunes, and a lot of just strumming on what he felt like at the moment. White tourists weren't special to him, and he didn't care what they thought about his music except whether they might give up a little change, mostly ones, but maybe even a five or ten. But Big Bill's like fifties was charity, and he didn't cotton to white folks treating him like charity. But he was low on cash, and he'd take anything today. His wife was bad sick and needed a doctor. Blacks rarely roamed around the French Quarter where the tourists clumped, except the punks, and it didn't make no difference about the punks not helping a brother because even a black got the stash almost never would put out even a dime. Besides, the punks didn't have nothing to give that wasn't stolen. No, sir. Willie's life was tied to the whites when it came to money. Pissed him off, too. Ever since he first learned about whites, when he stood about hound dog high 63 years ago. But this day, a white dude came into his life. Arrogant, too, like he was superior. This white guy all beard and bushy-headed come toward Willie, out of Pirate's Alley, wearing pants with holes in the knees and a plaid shirt with buttons missing, like he'd crawl out of a dumpster. And a wrinkled Panama hat with a brim down in front, and you could only see his eyes when his head tilted back. He'd been in the alley for a while, leaning against the cathedral wall fence, just staring. With all that hair on his face, you couldn't tell what he was feeling. He had these piercing eyes, cold like he didn't be liking black folk. He didn't say nothing, just hold up a harp, a big river. Split the take, the man say. He don't talk crazy or even down and out. He got some schooling, probably running from the law. Don't need no side men, Willie said. The man sat down on the bench no more than a couple feet away. Said, I don't need no help, Willie said strong. No law against me sitting here. Hey, you on my spot, man. This my spot for a long time. Not on your spot. I'm on my spot next to your spot. 
and I'll put my head out for change in front of me if you don't want to work together. Look, my man, no playing. This is all I got. Don't bullshit me, the man said. I straight with you. You're on welfare, probably got social security, maybe a pension, maybe got a woman turning tricks, living in the tree may, liking life just fine. I don't like you, Willie said. I'd be young, I'd whoop your ass. I don't think so, the man said. A tour group was walking down from the corner of Charters in St. Anne, so Willie turned up the knob on his amp and began playing, kicking his money can out into the path. Well, the white dude next to him put down his Panama a little further out in front, but a few feet from Willie's can, turning it top down to take money. Then the dude puts on shades he takes out of his shirt pocket. They sit crooked on his face because they bend and crank like he sat on them. Fucking honky, Willie think. So Willie's got the thumb on the downbeat on the low string and open tuning, and he uses his first and second finger to carry an upbeat for rhythm changed in with a little melody and a slap of a heel on his hand so that with the amplifier sound like a gunshot. He ignored the white guy best he can, but he sees him out of the side of his eyes, sucking in on a note here and there on his harp, getting the pitch. He changes harp then, taking another, a Horner Blues, out of his jacket pocket, and Willie start playing quick, the tourists getting close. The crowd slowed to stop like blackbirds swooping in for a roost, all gathered round looking at Willie, so Willie up his energy a little. But the tourists be looking through Willie after one chorus, eyes jerking around like they lost where Willie was, so Willie sing a song, and for a moment the group looked back to him, but not for long. The few people in the back of the bunch of music lovers already start leaving with nothing in Willie's can. Shit, the white dude gonna be blown over Willie's guitar, and the white dude start tapping his foot so hard his beat crush out Willie's faint slow pulse, and the dude start wailing, sounding like a fast train's wheels clacking at a spur crossing. Then he's putting in Phil, bending nose easy as a willow branch. Damn if them tourists freeze like they was wax figures in that fake history museum on Bienville. They staring at the dude, and the folks that start off going away from Willie turn back, coming back to see the dude. Now the tourists give an angry looks at Willie, irritated Willie's sound invading the dudes and looking like to bust Willie's guitar and turn it to ash. Well, Willie stops playing. The dude's not bad, God damn it, he thinks. Willie ain't heard many like him. Pissed Willie off, too. White man play a beat like that, make it sound joyful sour with the sound of a colored parade band coming back from a funeral. The white guys stop, then pick up a slower tune. Tourists throwing green into his hat like he's collecting for the church. So Willie ain't in tune with the guy's harp, but he don't like being outshined, and he starts slapping out a rhythm on the strings with the heel of his hand. And in seconds, he lay the guitar flat on his lap so he can use both hands to pound out a shuffle with a slow Mardi Gras Caribbean beat. He kick his can out a little farther. She had to do never look at it. Never give him no apperceived eye glance. And the tourists still reaching out them arms and dropping a paper into that dude's hat. In two tunes, Willie's sure the guy makes fifty bucks. Fifty. Some blimp of a woman dropped two quarters into Willie's can. Clunk, clunk on the bottom. No one else. Nothing more than two quarters for gate mouth Willie Brown. The dude played maybe half an hour making money. 
the crowd growing, and then he put that harp in his right side pocket, reached down to take the cash out of his hat and stuff it in his left pocket, take off his shades, then put that hat on top of his head and walk off. God damn, he don't ever look back. Not one time he give a wave or a call thanks to Willie for backing him on a couple tunes, and Willie wants to drown that white man in the Mississippi, push him in at the wheel of a paddle steamer. Yes, sir, that dude don't deserve no mercy. Next Saturday, after the flow of drunk guys in town for the Saints game slowed down, Willie slide around the corner on St. Anne where Tuba Fat's playing with Henry Thibodeau on clarinet and some 16-year-old kid out of the Ninth Ward blowing a valve trombone. Boy, is that stupid. Tourists don't like no valves on a trombone. They like a slide, the growl, even when it sound like shit. You ever see that white dude on a harp before? Willie asked Fats. Fats shake his head no. Well, he playing on my spot. He fucking know how to blow that motherfucker. Well, he ain't supposed to be taking my tips. He talked to you? Maybe three words full. The next day, the white dude's back mid-afternoon. Fucker sit on the same spot next to Willie's spot. Willie kicked his can out a little further. Today, Willie bent on turning some bread while the dude playing to back the white dude, keep him from hogging. Then he pulled out his bottleneck slide and put out a little melody on his top string where he don't need to change tuning, just slide on the string to make it sound good. Well, the dude never look at him. Don't even glance to say he like or don't like it. After half an hour, the dude clear his hat and cram cash into his pants pockets. Damn, must be $75. But nothing for Willie. It's racist, no count about the money. The dude is a fuck-off racist, hating Negroes, taking advantage. The dude came back three days in a row. After the first day, Willie kept putting out his can. He'd get a little, but the tourists given most to the dude. And that ain't the usual for the white guys crowding in on the black man's gig in the quarter. Them tourists pity the blacks playing the street. They give to music men like giving money to eight-year-old pickaninnies tap-dancing for coins. Well, the dude don't talk much. Willie's sister-in-law say the white man a murderer, but Willie don't see that in him. Maybe he's steal, but Willie don't see him killing nobody. So Willie decided to broach the guy. Hey, mister, how about you split? Hey, you said you didn't split. I changed my thinking. The dude shrugged. He don't like sharing nothing with Willie, whose can still only get a few coins in rare green, nothing higher than a one. On a Friday, Willie take the wife to the doctor early in the morning. They gotta ride the streetcar to City Park. Come on, Hermione, he say, but she's staring out of her wheelchair like her skull gone empty. We going to the doctor, he say. Well, that get her, and she begin wailing and moaning. She say something like, nah, but Willie knows she's real upset because he's been listening to her crazy talk for so long. She got dimension since Hurricane Camille, and that be's hard to take care of because Willie ain't got no money for the doctor she need. But the next day, Willie get back on his spot. Well, the dude, he don't show. And then Willie get confused because he likes the guy's plan, even though the honky ain't generous with his take. And in truth, Willie make more with his can when he's playing next to the dude collecting with his hat than with Willie making all the sound himself. After the lunch crowd, 
Willie take a smoke break with two fats. That guy asking about you, fats say. What you tell him? I tell him you taking Hermione to the doctor. None of his business. He asks, like you want to know you do drugs, steal from the church collection plate, stuff like that. What you say? I tell him I don't know you real good, but I tell how sick Hermione be. Well, don't be telling him no more. He not like a bro. But he blow good, Tubafat say. Well, the dude come back. Willie decide he gonna sing a song while the guy wipe out his mouth with a tissue over his finger before blowing his harp, like cleaning the shit out of the stable before putting the horse in. This dude just sit back there and listen to Willie. The dude's hat still on his head down over his eyes, his legs stretch out. Willie finish his song and light up a joint he'd been saving. Sing that again, the dude say. I just done it. Just sing it again. So Willie knocked the glow off the tip of his joint and he put the butt in his shirt pocket for later to start singing again. The dude's got the right E-flat harp out of his pocket and he play along cross harp, not like he want to solo, but like he towed in a cotton bale delicately down a wharf with some wharf rat working at an hour rate. Bale be heavy and need to be tipped just right to ease the weight, and the feet need to be set just right on each step, testing the wood planks for cracks to avoid losing control. It take feel. It can't be learned. The dude got it, Willie think, and the tourists come like swarms of roaches dropping off banana leaves in the garden district, and they looking at Willie, who's trying his best to look like a lead. Willie kick his can a little farther out, and Willie's singing it and the guy back him for maybe only the second time. Damn if the greens don't start almost flowing over the side of Willie's can. And from that song on, for many days, Willie sing and make money, and the dude back him. And when the dude leave, he divvy up equal the bills from his hat and gives them to Willie no matter how much them tourists put into Willie's coffee can that still sits separate out in front of him. Every few days the dude come for more than a month. He might teach Willie a song or tell him how to play one of his standards better than he doing. Tuba Fats bitch of Willie making money because it cut down on Fats take. Fats been a big draw in the square for more than a decade and Fats don't take to being second best. A week later it's still hot and Willie hear the word pass and creep through the quarter, through the artist vendors hanging them pictures on the fence around Jackson Square. Pictures of the cathedral and the cabilda, and them drawings of famous people that no one know who they are because they all look drawed the same. And the tarot card readers, the living statues, the tap-dancing seven-year-olds with beer cans scraps sewed on the soles of their sneakers and scamming tourists for tips. Hey, mister, I bet a quarter I can tell you where you got them shoes. Well, okay. They on your feet. Oh, Jesus. The whisper come through all them folks like the wind before one of them storm like red-hot Tabasco sauce. The word be out. A guy showing like, I don't be dressed like a cop coming up Royal Street. Go around the square in a flash, and then up and down Decatur, out to the park across the streetcar tracks. Well, Willie and the dude hear the word. They look around, and Willie spot him first. Then the dude see him. Jeans, open-neck shirts with a collar not tourist, and blue sports jackets with a bulge near the heart, like they're carrying heat. The dude take cash from his hat and put it in Willie's can. 
Then he reached into his inner jacket pocket and pulled out an envelope he'd give Willie. Willie hurried to hide the envelope in the lining of the guitar case so the cops don't see nothing when they walk from the tarot card reader who's smiling like she ain't never had dope in her possession since Christ be born in Bethlehem. In seconds before the cops see him, the dude disappear into the shadow of Pirate's Alley. The dude hold back long enough to see the cops coming. Willie looks down, shake his head when the two dickheads be asking him questions. They not locals, feds maybe. Willie saw the dude shoulder his pack, and the dude's gone when the cops move on to jaw and tuba fats. Fats just smile and say he don't know nothing. Willie never see the dude again. In the envelope is enough money to add to Medicare and welfare and get Hermione into a nursing home for a while, where she'd be watched 24-7 so she don't hurt herself. And Willie's coffee can's still doing good, filling up on its own now without the dude. Like the dude left some good vibes in Willie's axe when he disappeared. And soon, Willie's plan brings swarms of tourists to throw money his way, like he's a healing cave at that Lord's place in France. Chapter 60 While in New Orleans, Hiram arranged for a new identity with new papers that he was more confident would conceal him that he would use when he was permanently located. He was sure the cops in the quarter of the day he stopped playing with Gatemouth Willie Brown were out for drugs and not him. He was happy in Louisiana, and he went to Lafayette to play harmonica and washboard in the Zydeco band. He stayed in a motel run by a friend of the fiddle player, living quarters where he didn't need documents and he could work on his memoir, which was now more than 200,000 words. It was quiet in Lafayette, and Hiram continued to dream of finally settling down when he got his last identity papers. He definitely decided to settle in Maine. He'd made three trips to make himself known, establishing an identity, working as a guide for climbers in Acadia National Park. He'd volunteered for neighborhood watches and attended a church. He donated to the library and attended book club readings. He liked the librarian and often joined her for coffee at the Ebb Tide, a fish chowder home-cooked food restaurant that served free coffee when it was snowing. It was a society foreign to his former existence, but it was out of the mainstream, and people lived their own insular lives with rare curiosity about strangers, who they ironically depended on to feed their economy. He knew he'd be happy there. Maria Petulant Maria was back on the habit. She hadn't received any money from Max Roja, and she needed cash. She called Max. Hey, where's my $500? You've had plenty of time to catch him, she said to Max's answering machine. Max called her back from New York the next afternoon, when Maria was still in bed asleep after a late-night gig. Uh, we haven't caught him yet, Max said. Well, I'm right about him being here. You've seen him? No, but uh, I know a musician's sound in the quarter. You need to see him, Max said. Keep looking. You owe me, Maria said. But at least to capture, Max said. He's here, I tell you. Call me when you see him. The lying bitch, Maria thought. She promised cash. Maria had been listening out for Hiram McDowell for months even spent time walking the quarter during the French Quarter Festival. She hadn't seen him or heard him for six weeks. 
I'll be back in touch, Maria said before Max hung up. A month later, Maria had a gig at the Shrimp and Oil Festival, singing with a New Orleans traditional band, early in the morning and second line, stuff like that, and she heard McDowell's sound buried in a Zydeco band near the river. She was on stage between numbers when she heard Hiram, and she left the middle of a tune to track him down. She found him in minutes, saw him playing in an adjacent tent. Couldn't recognize his face from all that hair, but he was the right height, and the sound was his. She called Roja. He's here, Maria said. Stay with him. He'll be playing tomorrow, and I think the next day. At least the festival's that long. You coming down? Keep in touch with me every time you see or hear him. I'm on my way. You owe me a thousand dollars for this. Roja broke the connection. Hiram. It was late the next day when Hiram saw Maria on stage. Damn it, he thought. He blocked his face with his head. She probably couldn't recognize him at this distance in a crowd. And the stage lights were in her eyes. Still, he'd have to leave. But after his last gig tonight, he couldn't let his musician friends down without warning. It was past midnight on the last night of the festival. The crowds were thinning, except at the music venues. The Zydeco band played in a canvas tent with a stage and seating for more than 200 on wooden folding chairs. Hiram played harp and washboard behind the front line, next to the drummer and acoustic bass. He saw Maria enter the tent. She was plainly visible in the glow from the stage lighting, and he saw the woman from Montana, the one with Paige Sterling. He'd been found. He dropped slowly to his knees, moving to his right behind the bass. The tune was almost finished. The crowd attention was on the front line and the singer. He unstrapped the washboard and left it at the edge of the stage platform. He lowered himself down three feet to the dirt. Bent over, he shuffled the ten feet to the tent edge. On his belly, he squeezed under the edge of the canvas to the dark exterior that faced the river. He paid a man for a balloon-tired bicycle and headed for Lafayette. An hour later, he had his pack and his traveling gear and was on the road west. He planned to soon head north, go through Mississippi territory he knew well, trek through Arkansas. He rested for only short times for more than two weeks, until he felt that he had erased any chance of that woman tracing his movements. He was moving to less populated states of northern Nevada, northwest California, Idaho, and Wyoming. Chapter 61 Winnemucca, Nevada Winona Payman meets Hiram traveling as Pete Lake. Sixty-one-year-old Winona's firm, trim glutes settled on the top step of two unpainted wooden steps that sank two inches into the dirt after years of being the only entrance to her trailer home through the side door. The trailer sat on a four-acre lot that had no boundary fence, or any markings for that matter, just twenty-eight trailers scattered an angle to one another in the northwest corner where the hookups were. The trailer park, with no name, was owned by a 60-year-old wizened bachelor who tended his bar in Elko and showed up the first of every month in Winnemucca to collect rents, but never in between. Winona was thin and limber. With her forearms resting on her thighs, she cradled a glazed pottery mug with the missing handle between her knees. The aroma of black coffee in a tin pot over a butane gas two-burner stove surrounded her. The white cotton shift thin and stretch, 
was crumpled high on her thighs and did not hide the outline of her panties or sagging once ample breast. She contemplated with fondness a 77 faded red Ford pickup truck with flat tires and a tailgate down, with a bed loaded with cardboard boxes wrapped in plastic to protect against the weather. The motor hadn't run for more than two years, but it served its purpose to store pots with succulents and cacti she brought in from the desert on her plain air painting excursions. The sun burned a hole in the morning blue sky well above the horizon, and she squinted when she looked up to see her neighbor Kitsy, a plump short woman in shorts and a t-shirt, coming down a worn, grassless path from the second trailer on her left. Kitsy was carrying a metal mug with a handle and coffee hot enough to steam. Winona moved over on the steps to give room to Kitsy, who sat without speaking. They sipped coffee for many minutes. Oh, there's someone in that abandoned camping trailer in among the trashed cars on the southwest corner, Kitsy said. No one could live there, Winona said. I seen him from afar on my walk this morning. Maybe that government surveyor's back. He weren't that kind to come back to a trailer he left more than two years ago. Well, it's no harm, Winona said. What if he's a murderer? He raped people, steal. No normal man live in a rusted-out camper trailer too small to stretch out in. Call Harold, then, Winona said. I called Harold. He's down a deputy, can't take the time. Harold scares me sometimes, Kitsy, Winona said. We never find someone good to be sheriff. He's mean as a snake, Winona said. Well, he'll ease my mind, mean or not. Can you call him? My phone's cut off now. Winona put her hand on Kitsy's arm and nodded. Obliged, said Kitsy. Sheriff Harold came by Winona's trailer the next afternoon. He wore pointed toe, white-on-black tool leather boots, jeans, a plaid shirt, and his deerskin brown wide-brimmed Stetson with a sheriff's badge pinned on the front. Ain't nothing there now, he said. Some have slept there recently, but not last night. It's a piece of junk, but he'd cleaned up some inside. Cooking may be over a sterno. I found a can there. Do you know it was a man? Winona asked. No place for a woman to go. Kitsy's scared. I got nothing to ease or worry, the sheriff said. No doubt someone's been there. Can't tell if he's still there. Call if either of you sees him again. Maybe I get to talk to him. He paused. You got a gun, Winona? I don't believe in guns, she said. Well, maybe you can find something to protect yourself. Wouldn't feel good something happened to you. Can you check in on Kitsy at night? She'd appreciate it. Kitsy take care of herself. She's scared of the people around her sometime. Make her feel better to have you look in. I ain't got enough help to be babysitting the likes of Kitsy. Maybe just look in on the park sometimes. It's private property, Winona. Needs its own security. We take care of each other, Sheriff. But we need to know the laws around we crush crime in this county pretty damn good, Monona. Just give us the feel that we got protection. Can't make folks feel different. They're protected best there is. Thank you, Sheriff. In the name of God, as long as I know you, I'm Harold. Don't be saying Sheriff. Makes me feel like the enemy. Winona smiled. Harold, she said. 
Calling him Harold didn't come easy. He was one creepy specimen of male macho. A couple weeks later, the sheriff came by Winona's. You see any more of that guy in that trailer? I think he's all right. Kitsy talked to him, said hello to him when she saw him walking toward that junk pile. I'll walk down there and see if there's anything about. I'll go with you, Sheriff, Winona said. You think you'd make a deputy? Woman on patrol? He laughed. Get me a police hat, Winona smiled. I could use the pay. No pay, Winona, just the honor, the sheriff said. I'd rather have a badge and some money than honor, Winona said. The sheriff don't see any sarcasm in that, she thought. Looky there, the sheriff said, pointing to a rabbit who knew he'd been spotted and froze in fear. The sheriff unholstered his revolver, steadied his arm, and took aim. No, don't, Winona cried. But the trigger was pulled, the shot released. The rabbit fell over kicking and making a pitiful high-pitched scream before going limp and silent. The sheriff turned the breathless creature over with the point of his boot. Got him in the heart, he said, aiming for his head, but ain't bad for fifty feet. It's new, my Smith and Wesson Magnum. Winona didn't speak as the sheriff walked back. Coyote will eat him, the sheriff said. They walked on in silence. They were coming up on the trailer, in among maybe fifty rusted, crushed, and mangled vehicles, mostly autos except for a pickup truck and a few vans. The trailer rested on a single two-wheel carriage, both tires flat. The side door was missing the hinges. The hinges that remained were now brown with rust. The trailer back was slanted, and the front curved, shaped like a comma face down. But on the back was the only window, cracked and gray-opaque. He's been her recent, said the sheriff, pointing to a circle of ash from burnt stick pieces that had been rubbed and scattered with a boot. The sheriff looked inside the trailer. He keep it clean of trash. I give him that, he said. Is this dangerous, him staying here, went on to ask. I ain't no prevaricator for the future, but it seems to me he done something by now if he was going to. Why would a man sleep here? That place for homeless and elko's still open, isn't it? Winona asked. Far as I know. I wonder why he's here. On the run, I'd say. Don't want to be found. Isn't this illegal? Well, it's hard to jail a man for sleeping in a junkyard, and we got too many deadheads in town already. Even to identify him, Sheriff? Take his fingerprints or something? Well, we can do that, Winona, but it ain't worth the time without some reason. Maybe you can drop by more often, see if he's here, take him in. Well, I'll try for you, Winona, and give us a heads up the moment you see him. We'll check him out for you best we can. We'll keep an eye out, Winona said before they turned to walk back. She tried to remain upbeat, but the vision of the bloody rabbit carcass was fixed in her mind. Weeks later, Winona took the bus to Reno to buy artist supplies. She was gone for the day and got back late at night. The next morning, Kitsy came over as usual to sit with Winona on her steps. They drank two cups of coffee, each in silence. And then Kitsy spoke. That man is back, she said. You saw him? I talked to him. And? He fixed that window wouldn't open over the sink. He got the toilet to flush with a handle back in place. 
Don't have to reach down in the tank no more. I'll call the sheriff, Winona said. He said he'd check him out. Is he still here? Yep. Said he'd be by today to jack up the side of the trailer so the floor don't tilt no more. You trust him, Winona asked. Much as you trust any man. I'll call the sheriff, Winona said. She started to get up to go inside for her phone, but Kitsy put her hand on Winona's arm with enough force that Winona sat back down and picked up her coffee cup. Don't think he deserved that, Winona. He doing good. He rented a double wide from Mr. Parson, paid him cash up front, and he keeps out of sight of us and everybody. He hurting no one. But you don't know him, Winona said. He's a good man. Down on his luck, likely. Let's leave him be for a while, Kitsy said. Winona sat quietly, thinking. There was a risk. She couldn't forget that. You be painting here today, Kitsy asked. Winona nodded. I'll bring him by. You can make your own mind straight out. Has Sheriff Harold been by? Ain't seen him more than a month. And that was in town. And you don't think this man is a criminal? Don't know what he done. But he don't deserve to be turned over to the law. I'm pretty right about that. Winona thought for a moment and didn't object. Kitsy was good in judging people. She'd learned by her mistakes over the years. And she was honest to the core. The man said his name was Pete Lake. Winona found him reserved but friendly. He was appreciative of a cup of coffee. He spoke well, certainly educated, but vague on his past. She showed him her artwork, those ready for a show in Ogden, Utah, next month, and many others in progress. He seemed interested, but expressed no unchecked exuberance. He commented on nature scenes, the mountains, the desert, the vast landscapes that made the bulk of her reputation in sales. They sat at an unpainted weathered picnic table near Kitsy's trailer. Kitsy made brownies for the occasion and showed Winona the repairs Pete had made. I was wondering if I could fix up that van, Pete said, pointing to a weathered, rusted VW van from the 1960s that was parked on the gravel bed next to the unpaved drive that led to the highway about a half mile north. Does it run? Pete said. Kitsy shook her head. Not mine. It belonged to Winona. The tire went flat, Winona said. I haven't used it in a couple months. Kitsy takes me in her pickup. She waved toward Kitsy's trailer where a Chevy pickup was parked. Who lives over there? Pete asked, nodding at the other trailer. Man died almost three years ago, Kitsy said. His daughter and her kids there for a while. I run it now, Winona said. I store canvases and paint supplies there to keep my place livable. And those two rigs near the road, Pete asked. A single mom and her mother, and a man works trash pickup, Kitsy said. This is a relatively safe place to avoid identification, Winona thought. No one here cares about a stranger's past. They're too busy hiding their own secrets to pry into the lives of others. She was curious about this well-spoken stranger. What did you used to do? Winona asked Pete. Well, a little of everything. Whatever came around. Why are you here? Kitsy asked. Ain't the best place to find work. Taking some time off, Pete said. He's on the run, Winona thought. Someone's chasing him. But he doesn't seem dangerous. 
He even seems kind and thoughtful. Chapter 62 Winona Winona drove. Hiram sat in the front passenger seat, now in the functioning, heat-restored van, declining to drive. She wasn't sure why. She stopped at a familiar spot off Route 400 near Star Peak. Hiram had come to hike while she painted plein air, but instead Hiram sat on a rock as she set up her easel and carefully squeezed paint on her palette. She set up solvents and water and pocketed painting cloths in her apron. She sat on a three-legged folding stool. She adjusted the canvas facing west. She sketched the scene. Desert with mountains, grasslands, a farm building to the right, a few cows and wild horses. She kept the vista wide, maybe ten miles of horizon. The mountains maybe thirty miles away, some with snow peaks, the occasional cloud drifting by at twenty thousand feet. Hiram didn't move watching her. She wanted to ask him if he would hike, but thought better of it. He seemed to want to stay for a while, and she liked that. She enjoyed being around him. She'd made all the marks she needed on the gessoed background. She began to lay quick, drying washes for the basic shapes of sky and mountains and foreground. Can I do that? Pete asked. I think you can probably do whatever you set your mind to. Make a picture, I mean. Winona cleaned a few brushes. I got a sketch pad, pencils, and an eraser. If you'll bring me that canvas tote bag from the van. Pete found a rock to sit on a few feet away from her. Just draw what you see, she said. She was already defining areas on the canvas with a burnt umber wash. Define the horizon. That's the essential line to build the rest of the drawing. You're taking a vast image and contracting it to a few square inches. Proportions of objects need to relate on paper the way you see them in reality. Should the horizon line be curved? Pete asked. Why would you want to do that? Winona asked. The earth is round. I'm drawing the horizon at the edge of the earth. Shouldn't it be curved? The horizon line will disappear as you put it in the landscape. You use it for reference. But the proportions, if I'm trying to get the proportions right, wouldn't the horizon on my drawing show a curve? She saw his point. He was thinking like a scientist. I don't know if you can appreciate the Earth's curvature from this view. We're what, five, six thousand feet? But the horizon can't be seen. Pete drew for a while. She glanced occasionally to see his progress. His lines were too meticulous, the shading too dense and unvaried. Pete saw her interest. The curvature on the horizon idea didn't make any difference, he said. I've been to the highest place on Earth. The horizon is obscured by clouds and 8,000-meter mountain peaks. But I always had an intense awe for how minuscule we are. The Earth is this globe where distance is measured in light years, and the bigness of things is incomprehensible because we don't know the boundaries of the universe. As I was watching you get started... I have some of that feeling from on high here. I love the vast topography that perpetuates a respect for insignificance. I begin to feel lost sometimes, inspired at others. Winota put her brush in a jar, placed her palette on her knees, and surveyed the landscape hues altered by the ascending sun. After a few minutes, she said, Do you like creating art? 
Not as much as I would hope, Pete said. I get the feeling that what I see as beauty in our world and want to capture will never be possible. I'd always be hampered by inadequate imitation. Welcome to the club, Winona thought. After a pause, Winona said, Some of the great artists do that for me, too. Give me reality expressed in different ways with skill that pleases me. I just know I could never develop skills to that level. It would eventually depress me. To try is not failure, though, and you never know what you might discover. I guess I'd have to think about it. Try some other subjects, Winona said. The van, maybe. They broke for lunch, leaning against the van on the shady side and eating sandwiches and brownies with lemonade that Winona had brought in a cooler. Are you religious? she asked Pete. I don't know, he smiled. Are you? I was. I think about it now, but not with enthusiasm. It's tough to go on sometimes without thinking about why we're here and what's beyond. It's why I like painting in the West, Winona said. It opens the mind to metaphysical possibilities. That only a special person can divine. It's not easy for me, Pete said. She swallowed and looked at Pete. Oh, I think almost everyone discovers some sense of where they are and are not in the scheme of things. I think only a few. Everyone has their individual experiences, their own thoughts. Not many think philosophically about truth and existence and what we're supposed to do. You seem to intend on the subject. What is it that humans should be thinking about? Is there life after death? Is there a God that can intervene in human life? Pete said. How did you come to an interest in that? I'm writing a memoir. I want to have an impact. I don't think anyone knows. Religion and faith help fill the unknown, don't you think, one of said. And without the faith, that's where fear can creep in, Pete said. Why fear, Winona asked. Afraid of doing something or not doing something during your time on earth that will mess up your access to the afterlife. Incur the wrath of God. Prevent obtaining something others have. But if there is a God, he loves us, Winona said. Or she? Or she, she said. Most believe God loves us only if we love him. So where are the rewards, Winona asked, cleaning up the trash that had been placed on the cooler and stuffing it into a plastic bag. I've come to believe we find our rewards here on earth, Pete said. Heaven and hell? I guess. I think we shape our heaven and hell by our actions on earth. I'm almost sure of it now. And you don't mean building monuments and bridges, even climbing mountains? Right. It's society and culture where we find ourselves immersed in the conscious time we're given as humans during life. We make our heaven and hell by how we influence the humanity we live in, how we contribute, how we integrate, how we build to make it better. How did you ever come to that, Winona asked? Writing this memoir. I've been told I had to know what made people do what they do to write anything significant. And you believe when life stops, our body returns to the elements? We don't exist. I don't know about the soul. Does an idea exist? Is there anything about a thought that is like a molecule we will eventually identify as matter and know its presence? What did you do before, Winona asked? I was a doctor. You made a good living? By wealth standards, yes. And that didn't suffice for your heaven on earth. It turned out to be hell. 
What happened? I was among the best. I made mistakes, but not in patient care. Don't you miss it? Sometimes, but my life's getting better now. Winona put the cooler on the back seat of the van. I'm glad things are working out for you, she said. And what about you? Pete asked. I want to be a significant painter. I believe in the importance of art. They started back toward the easel. That sounds pretentious, doesn't it, she said. Not at all. Unrealistic? Hey, I'm no art expert, but I agree with perfection, and I know I like what you're doing. Winona started painting again. I think I'll try to draw you, Pete said. Do you mind? You could find better subjects, she said. I don't think so, Pete said. Winona's painting became rote, her brush strokes placed with no thought and little purpose. She thought about her life. What was holding her back? The hurts from a broken marriage, from children who had severed any links of love, from a social setting that condemned her for a family fiasco that ended with a loss of respect and caring. She painted to fight loneliness and avoid human contact that could hurt her again if she were to get involved. And here was Pete. She couldn't suppress her interest. It's my hell, I guess, she thought. And being with Pete made her believe she had to get busy creating her own heaven. She had liked the suffering too much, as if it made her existence justified. She resolved to change. She'd get herself back on track. For many weeks, Pete worked on his memoir in his trailer. He still hiked and exercised daily. He liked being with Winona, and he soon ate meals with her when she was alone and invited him. He rarely went to her trailer during the day. Winona had many friends who stopped by frequently, some daily. He did not want to be a topic of conversation. He often helped her with packing and shipping when she sent paintings to galleries who carried her work in Mendocino, Aspen, Provo, Santa Fe, and Boulder. He came to enjoy an intellect whose ideas were deeply considered and saturated with concern for others. Chapter 63 New York Sophie Months after Sophie had finally evicted June and moved back into her apartment, Paige invited her to an afternoon concert at Lincoln Center and an early dinner at Lincoln Restaurant. Sophie was stunning in a knee-length fire-engine red dress, black pumps, and a thin black belt at her trim waist. Crystal teardrop earrings glittered in the light filtering through the glass restaurant walls that opened to the exterior. Paige thought, I've lost Sophie's vibrant and youthful glow and brisk movements years ago. I look like a living corpse ready for display in a funeral home. She felt a pang of jealousy, looking as Sophie reminded her. She passed through the looking glass into the land of the loveless elderly. After they were seated, Paige ordered a bottle of California Chardonnay. She stroked the crystal glass stem as she spoke. Any word from Ann and Billy, she asked. Ann's doing better, Sophie said. Robert is working full-time now that Ann can take care of herself during the day. And Billy's developed a new line of drum equipment. He's doing okay financially. And Tasha just had a baby girl. Any word from your father, Paige asked. Not about the manuscript, Sophie said. The waiter came poised with a pen and pad. 
Sophie studied her menu with excessive intensity. Paige had not opened her menu and continued to look at Sophie, pleased that they were together. They made decisions. The waiter wrote down their choices and left. He's finished writing, Sophie said. He insists I find a publisher. You know I've tried, but no one is interested. He still doesn't want to talk to you. I need to talk to him, Sophie. Tressler still doesn't like the way the biography's going. Incorporating the memoir could make the biography the best of the year. Tressler believes that, and your father would always be credited for what is used. The waiter approached with a tray. What about the money? Sophie asked. I'd be sure he's compensated the way he wants, even if I have to use my advance. I'll ask, Sophie said. He could call me. He's sure that would lead to betrayal, Sophie said. The waiter held up his hand to get their attention. Which of you had the ragu, he asked. Sophie received a manuscript from her father a few weeks later. Hiram called to see that it arrived. Can I take it to Paige now, she asked. Still no other way, Hiram asked. There is no better way, Dad, I'm sure. Call me soon. I think she'll want to ask you questions. Chapter 64 Paige worked on Hiram's manuscript. The last chapter ended at the time of his conviction. She called Sophie. There's nothing about his escape or his time on the run, Paige said. He doesn't see that as part of the memoir, Sophie said. It's essential for current updates, Paige said. I know he keeps diary notes now. I need those. You won't pay without them? Paige paused. No, we'll buy what he sent, but convince him to send what he has written down since. We'll pay extra for that. I don't think he'll do that, Sophie said, but I'll ask. Page sent a revised draft to Tressler, who called for a meeting the next week with Sophie Page and Charles Gibson. Manuscript pages were scattered across the conference table, and two screens displayed images from two laptop computers in front of Sophie. Tressler still said he wanted better writing. He read an example of what he thought was bad. What's wrong with that, Mr. Tressler? Page asked. I have details accurately describing McDowell's activity. What do you think, Charles? Tressler asked. No, it doesn't read well for me, Charles said. Sophie saw the hurt in Paige's eyes. She took criticism of her writing personally. It's still not objective, Tressler said. It is, Paige interrupted. Just listen for a minute, Tressler said. I read this, and it still reeks with your moral judgments that seem increasingly more inconsistent. We need no judgments. Just reporting. Give me an example, Page said. The Foundation Fundraiser. It's objective. No, it's not. Almost everything said is about excess, about potential abuse of donations, of celebrities whose only desire in life seems to be fame and admiration. Well, that's accurate, Page said. No, it's in the writing. You choose details that outweigh charitable work that must have occurred. That's spinning the narrative to your opinions. I tell you, I spent a lot of time on this, Page said. The foundation was excessive. McDowell's fundraising was to support his lifestyle as a world-class mountain climber and was minimally concerned with health care for the indigent. 
The time he spent in saving lives was minuscule. That's your judgment. It's the right judgment. Make your writing allow that reader to make that judgment. How many hours did he spend? How many lives did he save? How much time did he spend on the mountain? Weigh that against the description of the excess. It'll kill any engagement of the reader, Page said. Not with good writing. Present happening as you observed it, or as others described it. Balance it as best you can. Keep your personal judgments and opinions out of the writing, and let the readers come to their own conclusions. What do you think, Charles? Well, I think you're right about making the writing as objective and neutral as possible. Present truths without prejudice. If an automobile for his collection is worth $600,000, don't say it would take the average person half a lifetime to save for that. That's the truth, Page said. Maybe, but as presented, it's a judgment that the car costs too much. It would take the same amount of time for the average person to save that much for an operation for his sister or his mother, Charles said. And you would consider that just. You're not writing to insist $600,000 is too much for a car, any car. You need to state the cost. The reader will decide if it's too much or just right, based on their own experiences and opinions. You should be writing McDowell's biography with facts, not opinions. It's an important distinction that Charles makes, Tressler said. The readers have to be allowed to form their own opinions from facts presented. Otherwise, it borders on propaganda, and that's not fair and will turn readers off in droves. What do you think, Sophie? Page asked. He's your father. Do we have a just description of him and moral judgments? Sophie tensed. She was not pleased with how Paige was presenting her father in the biography. It didn't gel with her changing opinion of her father as a human being. He'd made mistakes, but he wasn't evil. He hadn't managed marriage well, but he'd loved her and Anne and Billy. She was sure of that now. And with her recent conversations, she knew prison and being on the run had changed him. She glanced apologetically at Paige. I don't think he's as bad as the book makes him out to be, she said. You thought it was wrong to kill Jeremy, Paige said. I've told you, I come to think he's assisted in Jeremy's desire for suicide. I'm sure of it now. That's the side of McDowell you need to explore, Tressler said. Present without innuendo, condemnation, or undue praise, for that matter. I agree. Let the reader decide, Charles said. Maybe, but there's not much to discover that's going to make him saintly, Page said. Make him human, Charles said. We can't characterize him as a monster. We have to present the truth of everything he's done. Then let the reader find the monster or the saint. Charles glanced from Page to Sophie. We need to know everything about his activity after he was sent to prison, Tressler said. And on the run, Charles said. I need to talk to him, Page agreed. He doesn't want to go back to prison. He speaks only to Sophie to keep the chances of exposure to a minimum. He'll be tough to find. Is that true? Tressler asked Sophie. Page sighed. Max thinks she might get him in New Orleans, she said. She's had sightings. Go with Paige, Tressler said to Sophie. I'll pay expenses. You need to be the first to see him. Sophie prayed that night that she'd see her father and that she could get to know him again. Paige needed to get the biography right, too. 
Her father deserved justice, but she was sure now he deserved vindication too. Chapter 65 Paige had Sophie over to her home office after Sophie finished her day at the studio to discuss slides for the biography. What do you think of that Charles guy? Paige asked. He's stuffy. You like him? Not really, Sophie said. She was sorry she said that. She didn't know why she didn't want to admit she appreciated Charles's ideas on the biography that supported an honest presentation of her father. And, for a man, she thought of Charles as gentle and caring, and she was touched by his shyness. Well, we're stuck with him for an editor, Paige said. We've got another meeting on Monday. Can you be there? Sure, Sophie said. Sophie reviewed photos from Nepal. Paige picked out the ones she thought they had to run by Charles. Want to get together this weekend, Paige asked. I've got a regatta, Sophie said. Paige looked puzzled. For crewing, Sophie said. We're ranked now, and on Sunday I'm going with a friend to Connecticut to sail. She's teaching me. Well, you're a real social butterfly, Paige said unenthusiastically. She was disappointed Sophie wouldn't be with her. Are you still seeing that Rosenthal guy, Sophie asked. Oh, God, no, not for months. I'm too involved in the writing, and I've decided to start to contract as an independent investigative reporter. I think I'll take it on full-time when the biography's finished. What about that special? I told him I wouldn't do it. I don't want to expose your father again. Your father doesn't deserve it. On Monday, Charles Gibson made Paige and Sophie wait for more than an hour. He was apologetic as he led them into the conference room, but he seemed pressured. You're getting a nice tan, Charles said to Sophie. She's learning to sail, Paige said. Most of it's from crewing, Sophie said. Where do you do that? Charles asked. We practice on a lake in New Jersey, and the weather's been great. Charles displayed the slides of the Foundation's fundraising night his secretary had tracked down. They seem sensational to me, Paige said. Excessive, the Bugatti, the string quartet, over the top and really not necessary. Isn't that exactly what Tressler was against? Maybe. But it was what impressed the photographer at the time, Charles said. I think we can use it. What is that stack of books with a woman in the miniskirt for? Sophie asked. For your father's book about the foundation in Nepal, Paige said. They were selling books and auctioned off some others with personal comments by your father and the author. Is that controversy going to be in the biography, Sophie asked, about truth of events in the book? It's part of your father's past that should not be hidden. The errors were documented on national TV twice, Paige said. By you, Charles asked? No, by a colleague. My father wasn't aware of the errors, Sophie said. Should the fault of the author be emphasized in my father's biography? Your father knew, Sophie, Paige said. He had to know. There was never any evidence found that a child was saved in school through your father's generosity, and he must have read a galley before publication. I don't think so. It wasn't important to him. He did it to help the foundation. He didn't do it for himself, Sophie said. I don't believe it, Paige said. But there's doubt about his involvement, said Sophie angrily. He really trusted the author to report accurately. I'll look at it more carefully, Charles said. 
and I'll check with Mr. Tressler to get his reaction. Sophie presented the photos from Nepal that showed the foundation staff and hospital. These were from my book on the plight of women in Asia. My brother and I stayed at the foundation hospital in Nepal much of the time. I thought there might be some useful shots. We can't use published photos, Charles said. They haven't been published. There's been little enthusiasm about publishing my documentary, and I'm sure nothing will ever come of it. Oh, I'm sorry, Charles said. They said my photos weren't raw enough, too much beauty, needed more journalistic exposure, more sense of evil and violence. Well, that's bullshit, Page said. It wasn't your photos that changed their minds. Their market disappeared. Publishing isn't doing well these days, Charles said. I've seen Sophie's photos, Page said. They show the desperation of women in many parts of Asia. There was one series that shows a beautiful young girl banished to a goat shed for her menstruation. Devastating. Let's consider that, Charles said. It could relate to the environment the Foundation served and be an important perspective on McDowell. Chapter 66 Charles met with Sophie and Paige two to three times a week. The three worked well together. Sophie contributed to editing and rewriting on many sections. Charles began to use Sophie as a reader for books and production, and as he depended on her more for opinions, he included her in editorial staff meetings for certain books, memoir, nonfiction, and fiction. And often in the evenings, Charles would invite Sophie to the opera, Lincoln Center, openings of Broadway shows, and Shakespeare in the Park. On weekends, they wandered the mazes of the Metropolitan and the spirals of the Guggenheim. Sophie shared her love of the arts, and Charles detailed his knowledge of ancient civilizations and their contributions to modern culture. They perused art galleries in Chelsea and Soho, and went to readings and concerts in the village. He's really creative, Sophie said to Paige. Do you love him? Paige asked. Sophie blushed. Oh, it's not like that. We're just good friends. You'd be the best thing ever to put some zip into Charles's life, Paige said. Sophie blushed again. Don't be ridiculous. He's so Eastern. Sometimes I wonder if my Southern upbringing doesn't irritate him. Don't put yourself down, Sophie. Suck it up and go after him. I'm not like that, Sophie said. He likes you. Like a baby sister, maybe. Horse poop, Paige said. Charles invited Sophie and Paige for the 4th of July weekend at the family house in Connecticut. Paige and Sophie drove up on Friday afternoon. They would return late Sunday. A grand party for extended family and friends was planned for Saturday on the lawn with a view of the ocean. Saturday night was a ball at the Yacht Club with more than 400 invited. Sunday would be a brunch at the house for family and guests before departure. The house was late 19th century, but well-preserved, and the grounds were kept pristine by a crew of attendants. Sophie and Paige shared a room in the guest house where Charles's younger sisters both had their own rooms. Sophie and Paige unpacked and dressed for dinner. The walk to the house from the guest house was under a covered walkway with a vaulted roof, stretching about 75 yards. Mrs. Gibson greeted them at the door and offered a tour of the house. This was my family's summer property, before this house was built near the turn of the century. Charles Eastlake was involved in the design of this house, 
although it is not known if he ever came here, she said. Along the wall of the entrance corridor were seven full-length portraits of family debutantes in white gowns and gloves. This was done by John Singer Sargent, Mrs. Gibson said, pointing to a radiant young woman with a roguish pose. The last portrait was contemporary with a debutante sitting with a mysterious side glance. This is Eleanor, Mrs. Gibson said, Charles's fiancée. She's a cousin of my sister's husband, twice removed. She and Charles played together on the terrace out front when they were in grade school. Sophie's heart sank. Fiancé? What a fool she'd been. She was only a friend to Charles, and she'd let herself believe there was more. It's a beautiful portrait, Paige said. I forgot the artist's name, Mrs. Gibson said. It's not one of my favorites. I thought he made Eleanor look ten years older than when she came out. In the dining room were other portraits of family. That is my husband's great-uncle, who was rumored to have died with Edith Horton in Paris, Mrs. Gibson smiled. The kitchen was hot and noisy with preparation for the evening's dinner. Sophie counted the pheasants lined up on trays for pre-cooking. Seventeen. The upstairs bedrooms housed Tista beds from different periods. Mrs. Gibson pointed out furniture by Belter and faux bamboo dresser by Poitier and Stymus. My grandfather was an avid collector of the best contemporary furniture of the time, Mrs. Gibson explained. After the tour, when Mrs. Gibson left, Sophie and Paige stood together with glasses of wine enjoying the view of the ocean on the stone-paved terrace. Well, that was a little humbling, Sophie said, as she intended. I got a little sick of her pompous self-importance, Paige said. Well, Charles doesn't seem that way at all. I would have never guessed. He's the most down-to-earth male I can ever remember, Paige said. And all this wealth in the family? A total surprise. I made my debut in Louisville, Sophie said. Compared to those dresses, I looked like little orphan Annie. New Yorkers are out of control sometimes, Paige said. It's almost obscene. But not Charles, Sophie said. Page smiled at Sophie's defense of Charles. He's the best, Page said. He made crucial changes in the biography without ever once making me feel bad. Do you know fiancé Eleanor? Sophie asked. Never met her. Heard she's in Paris, flying in tonight for tomorrow's events. Did Charles ever mention her to you? I didn't even know her name. She looks like the socialite extraordinaire. Way out of my league. Maybe we'll get to meet her, Sophie said without enthusiasm as she glanced behind Paige. Charles Gibson approached. A mother gave you a tour, I hear, he said. What an amazing family, Sophie said with muted enthusiasm. Charles smiled weakly. Are you guys settled in? Very comfortable, Paige said. Will we get to meet your fiancé? Well, I hope so. She's on the red-eye tonight. She should be here early in the morning. You've known each other since childhood, Sophie asked. Forever, Charles said. The announcement for cocktails in the library was made by a strolling servant. Thank you for coming, Charles said. I think you'll enjoy the festivity tomorrow. He turned to speak to an elderly couple that had just emerged from the covered walkway. At the lawn party the next day, Sophie worked the crowd in ways she'd learned growing up in Louisville society. It had been years, and she was concerned about the impression she was making. 
She had only a brief chance to greet Charles, who was hosting the party. She was curt and evasive. He seemed puzzled by her demeanor. She was ashamed and angry that she'd let her feelings about Charles soar so high. Have you seen Eleanor? Sophie asked Paige during a break. They've been engaged for eight years, Sophie. It's an arranged marriage that neither seems to want to consummate. How do you know that? I asked his brother. Sophie was a fluster of emotions. Maybe he could care for her. He loves you, Sophie, Paige said. I can see it. Sophie wanted it to be true, but she wouldn't admit it. Why is he still engaged, then? I think it allowed them to do their own things. She's interested in politics. She doesn't have time for romance. Sophie couldn't speak. She worried that her earlier treatment of Charles had offended him. She wanted to believe Paige so badly. She wanted Charles to care. But good things in her life always disappeared, and she suddenly couldn't believe that it was happening to her again. It's getting late, Paige said. We'll need to get ready for the ball. The ball was in the grand room of the country club. Christmas tree-sized crystal chandeliers glittered from the ceiling. Food service with sterling silver hinge-top serving dishes and ice displays of shellfish and salmon were at one end of the room. A full orchestra played continuously. Paige sat at a circular table at the edge of the dance floor as Sophie danced with a man she'd just met, a college classmate of Charles. A diamond clip that gathered her long dark hair glittered in the light from the chandeliers. She was stunning in a strapless formal red dress with a tight waist. As she twirled, the silk fabric undulated around her ankles, revealing dress pumps sparkling with red stones. She's beautiful, Paige thought. Paige had helped Sophie with her dress. Sophie had been so down about her misjudgment of Charles. It's too tacky, Sophie had said of the dress, looking in the mirror. It's elegant. You'll knock him dead, Paige had said. I wish it were true, Sophie said with no confidence. Sophie danced with rare breaks for three hours. Young men returned for a second and third dance and cut in at will to be paired with such a graceful partner. Sophie pulled it off without a wrinkle. At the end, before going to the car to return to the house, Sophie and Paige sat near the club portico on a bench waiting for their car to be brought from valet. They heard two men's voices standing near the drive and hidden by a line of eight-foot-tall boxwoods. Who's that broad in the dress, one said. Works at Charles's publishing company. Wasn't Eleanor upset? I mean, an employee. She's a photographer. Hardly a respectable invite. Eleanor's pissed, no doubt. Eleanor probably doesn't even know she's here. She's the best looking here. You're interested, aren't you? Ah, uh, not for an employee. Well, I'd like to know her a lot better. You know she's from the South. I don't mean to marry her. Don't waste your time. Her father's convicted of murder. Oh, Jesus, does anyone know? Charles knows. I'm not sure about the family, and they'll all know by tomorrow morning. Is that the euthanasia trial guy the FBI is hunting? Secretary of something? That's the one. That worthy your heart on? The men got into their cars. Sophie held back tears. Assholes, Paige said. I wish I were someone else, Sophie said. You can't escape who you are, Paige said, and you're great. Always believe that. But Sophie didn't feel any better.
On the drive back from the yacht club to the house, Sophie convinced Paige to take her back to the city early. They made their excuses before retiring and expressed their gratitude by writing notes on crane stationery found in the desk drawer of their room. They left their notes on the entrance hall side table. They left in the morning before other guests were up. In New York, Sophie continued to work with Charles in the biography and as an assistant on his editorial duties with other works to be published, but she declined social gatherings. Paige met Sophie after she finished work at the studio on a Wednesday to go to Bloomingdale's to shop and eat in a restaurant on Madison Avenue. Charles talked to me today. Paige began after they were seated and she had ordered. He came to my apartment. Sophie tried to maintain disinterest. He wanted to know why you changed. I told him, Sophie said. He's already asked me. He wanted the old Sophie back, Paige said. What did I do wrong, he said. I told him, I'm too busy at work, Sophie said. He doesn't believe that. Why don't you just be honest with him? I can't lead him on. I'll never be anything more than a murderer's daughter and his employee. It's not true, Paige said. It's the myth that lives on, and how could I ever dump that burden on Charles? It would ruin what he has. He loves you, Sophie. I told him about those guys at the ball. He hurt for you, for the injustice of it all. He said it would never matter to him, and I believe him. I can't do it, Paige. He doesn't see how it would ruin us. I told him how I felt about Eleanor, Paige said. Told him I thought he'd been insensitive about leading you on when he was engaged to his childhood sweetheart. Eleanor and I have never been in love, he said. We'll never marry. We've never even been friends. You were wrong to deceive Sophie, I said. He teared up. A grown man sitting in front of me, fighting not to cry. I felt sorry for him. Sophie said nothing. Her heart ached. But she knew that her past would always be a barrier to a truly open relationship. Would you see him again, Paige asked. He broke the engagement and assisted Eleanor make it public knowledge. He wanted me to tell you that. It doesn't change reality, Sophie said. Look, Sophie, don't make a mistake here. Look forward. He loves you. You love him. That doesn't happen to many people very often. Don't let it slip away because of public opinion about your father. Charles doesn't care, and he accepts the truth of your father's innocence. Sophie changed the subject, but that night she couldn't sleep. She lived with the deep sadness that she would always see a future ruined by her past. Chapter 67 Winona Winona drove the van on the first long-distance trip in a long time. With peace restoration, it cruised easily on the highways at 65 for the first time she could remember. Pete wrote in his notebook. He looked good. He trimmed his beard and hair for the trip. He decided not to wear a hat. And he'd bought slacks and an out-of-date but well-made sports jacket and a white dress shirt with a button-down collar at Goodwill in Salt Lake City. It's running smoothly, she said. I'm surprised. That I could do it, Pete asked. Don't be difficult, she smiled. They were going east on I-80. You always liked VW vans? Winona asked. 
Well, they captured a generation, but it's not my favorite, Pete said. They wrote in silence. What's your favorite, Winona said. You know, I bought a 34 Bugatti a few years ago. Well, that sounds expensive. I paid $190,000, sold it a year later after restoration work for just over 600000 I love that car. Because you made money? No, not at all about money. It had beautiful lines, and it functioned like a cheetah in full stride. That old car? Handmade. It had the feel of a real car. A physical experience. It hugged the road with a few inches of clearance, and the firmness of the steering made you feel in charge. I tested it on the Bonneville Flats before I had it restored. It was an unforgettable experience. They rode in silence, Pete lost in thought. It was the first glimpse he'd allowed her of his former life. That sounded pretentious, didn't it? He finally said. Winona smiled. A little more than that, she said. But I thought you were sincere about your love for the car. It was all the profit stuff. You really paid those prices for an automobile? Occasionally, like now, she had a rare glimpse into his past, but not really much about Pete himself. How could anyone spend that much money on a car? And she decided to break their unspoken vows of probing the past. His bringing up the car allowed that. What did you do back then, she said. She regretted the question instantly. She feared it would change their friendship. Had she opened wounds he'd suffer? She liked his interest in her. He asked her about painting, but he never asked about her husband, who was remarried now, living with a stalwart of exclusive society, or her children. I miss my children, she thought, as they used to be anyway. Pete had avoided talk about previous family, and he never asked why she was living alone in a trailer in a mountain desert. She'd probably tell him someday to explain that her husband had destroyed her, falsely accusing her of infidelity severing her from friends by lying about her innocence of wrongdoing and spreading evil stories of her past, all to marry a wealthy, connected divorcee who could assure him of a lifestyle he wanted in his retiring years. You wouldn't believe what I did, he said. He paused as he seemed to think about whether he wanted to tell her or not. I told you I was a doctor. Well, I was a surgeon. Winona's former and only husband was a doctor. And you made that kind of money, she asked. Pete laughed. I inherited a lot. Winona was curious but did not ask. It was more than Pete had ever revealed about himself or his past. She wanted to know more, a lot more. But she feared the danger on silencing forever if he thought she was prying. They rode on past two exits more than 60 miles apart. Pete was back to making notes. The VW passed an 18-wheeler. Winona smiled at Pete, proud to be passing anything with a van. She could see a smile of pride in his return glance. What makes you really want to paint pictures, he said. You've never said what I've asked you before. Why do you ask, he said. I'm working more things out for my book. It's ready to be edited. And I was wondering, you're writing about me? Well, not exactly. I'm writing about me, mostly, he smiled. Sort of arrogant sounding. But I'm interested in why people do things. I want to write something that will please, and I've been told I need to find myself and learn more about others to have any chance of writing something significant. He paused. And you spend a lot of waking hours creating pictures to please people. What drives you? She thought for a moment. 
It keeps me busy, and I enjoy it. No, not that. What does making pictures of sand and rock and sky do for you? What do you accomplish? You mean like relieve tension? Forget haunting memories? Make me sleep better? Oh, it's got more to do than that, Pete said. Don't you want to change people in some way? From the back window of a sedan that cut in front of the VW, a child waved frantically with a right hand, fingers spread, mouthing something unintelligible. What do you mean? Winona asked. You know, produce an emotional response in them, something that changes them for the better. Well, I never thought about it. I think painting has been an escape for me. A release of tension? Well, maybe. The sun was mid-morning high. She adjusted the visor. I don't think I expect the same reaction from viewers who see my paintings, even the ones who claim to like them. What happens to make you like the paintings you like? He'd ask. Oh, I have favorites. I saw Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring on a trip to the Netherlands. He's made her beautiful for me. Beautiful in ways I wouldn't have discovered looking at her in real life or a photo. Are there others, Pete asked. I love Sargent's lanterns. Do you know it? No, I don't. Children with paper lanterns in a garden, sharing innocence without guile. It's not just technical aspects or the subject matter. He was able to show me something about innocence that I'd lost as an adult. Especially after my divorce, she thought. Some of his portraits had given me insight into human nature, too. So as a viewer, you get pleasure from some intellectual or visual discovery about people. She thought about that for a moment, checking her speed with a glance. I don't think that's all. He was taking notes again. There is an Andrew Wyeth painting of rocks and water of a stream, she said. I didn't even like the painting when I first saw it. It was too photorealistic, almost surrealistic. But as I stared at it, it changed me in ways that I didn't realize until much later. He created a memorable image, and from that memory, I think I realized that there can be beauty in the image of pebbles and rocks at the bottom of a clear stream. I found beauty in what had been ordinary, even forgettable for me. He didn't create emotion. He taught me new ways to think and remember, and that was pleasurable, and probably what I would like to do with my landscapes and seascapes, to awaken new ways to see things, appreciate through things that are not possible by photographs or just staring. Pete wrote intensely now. Then he clipped his pencil on the cover and closed his notebook. Do you feel the same about sculpture, he asked. There is a head study of a woman grieving over the loss of her son by Jean-Baptiste Carpeau, 19th century art. Some think it's too sentimental, but the grief he captured tears my heart. So great art evokes empathy? What's your point in all this, Winona asked? Trying to judge what makes people do what they do and what makes them successful at what they do, he made a quick note. Is it giving pleasure to them in some way or just making them see and think about things in new ways? Couldn't it be either, Winona said, and maybe more. I saw an exhibit a few years back in Atlanta when I was married and before I started painting seriously. I didn't go on my own. It featured an artist's paintings and sculpture. She'd been an EMS technician riding an ambulance in her pre-artistic life. Her work was internal organs, blood, broken limbs and bones, crushed skulls, excrement. What motivated her, he'd ask. I was appalled. 
angry, really. It was grotesque. What was she trying to do to the viewer? It didn't give me pleasure. But she remembered. Maybe that was her purpose. But I hated her for etching in my brain something unwanted that I couldn't forget. It was space she didn't deserve. She had a political message? I'm sure, but I don't know what. She seemed anti-establishment and in a rage about humanity, so it gave her satisfaction to destroy the human form. Well, that's bizarre. And I resent her success. But it can't be lasting success, Pete said. Winona downshifted to break, then returned to cruising gear. For me, that she's accepted by the outer world, makes millions, and counts herself among the greats without shame, says we've lost our cultural compass to beauty. It has to be related to experiences of her past, too, Hiram said. I wouldn't think when creating art, very many artists start out to make a viewer think or feel a certain way, Winona said. Well, I like what you do, Hiram said. It pleases me. He looked to Winona to make sure she knew he was sincere. Winona put on a blinker to exit at a rest stop. I gotta pee, she said. She eased off the highway onto the access to the facilities. The more I think about it, she said, I think human culture deserves the artist's attempts at beauty. It's defining. Can a culture gorging on capitalism resist creating for wealth? Pete still took notes, now leaning forward with his notepad on the dash. She pulled into the line parking space at the rest stop. It must have an effect, she said, but probably most art is created with altruism still. Only time will tell. The future will seek beauty in the past, she said. Well, the futurists may not find a lot to please them from our generations, Pete said, opening the side door and stepping down before heading to the men's room. The exhibit was in the town hall in Ogden, Utah. Hiram helped transport and hang canvases. Winona asked him to stay for the reception. Food may be a little iffy in quality, but these receptions always seem to have a few unique items that are fun to try. He circulated as Winona made contacts. Highlighted alone on the wall with a special track lighting was Winona's painting of Nevada's Horizon. A best-of-show ribbon and a wooden brass plaque sat on an easel in front, praising her career. Pete stared and returned many times to gaze. Winona deserved recognition. They drove back the same night. When they said goodnight, Winona leaned forward and kissed Pete on the cheek. He reached out and took her in his arms, then held her for more than a minute. Chapter 68 The sun was down and the stars were out. Hiram sat on a folding chair outside his trailer, editing his diary notes on his knees. Winona ran up, winded from the effort. Thank God you're here, she said. Hiram looked up at her. What's the matter? Kitsy's at the emergency room. A truck totaled the pickup. From the sound of it, I don't think she'll live. Where is she? Is the VW a guest? Yes, Winona said. I'll drive, Hiram said. At the ER in the strip mall, only a technician and a nurse were standing next to Kitsy, who was lying on a gurney. Has she been conscious? Hiram asked. No, the nurse said, adjusting a pack of fluid on an IV pole. Do you have oxygen? I can't find the mask. You must have a nasal catheter. I looked. Where's the doctor? We can't locate him. We called the x-ray tech. 
He's not answering. Hiram quickly checked Gitsy. He took a stethoscope. What's her pressure? Ninety over sixty. Hiram listened to the chest, then the distended abdomen. The tech took a call in the cell. Air Mercy is tied up at least two hours, maybe more. Ready the ambulance, Hiram said. We'll leave for Reno in five minutes. You the driver, Hiram said to the tech. Yes, he said. Call the state patrol. See if we can get an escort. Hiram found a syringe. He released the trapped air and a pneumothorax with a stab between the ribs that went to the hilt before air bubbled into the syringe followed by a mixture of blood and yellow fluid. Kitsy's respiration slowed. Her blood pressure rose. But she was still unconscious. Start another line. We need expanders. Bound salt. Electrolytes, Hiram said to the nurse. What about the x-ray, the nurse said. Hiram ignored her. When he finished securing a temporary drain, he said, Draw blood for a type and cross-batch. See if there's any way for the police to get to the lab before we arrive. We'll need at least four units of blood. Let's go. Winona stepped forward. What can I do, she asked. Follow in the van. We'll be at St. Mary's in Reno in less than three hours with an escort. Be careful. Follow the speed limit and don't try to keep up with us. In minutes, they were on their way west. Twenty miles outside Winnemucca, state police entered from an on-ramp to lead the way. Get the surgeon on call and the speaker, Hiram said to the nurse who transferred their request to the driver. Hiram introduced himself over the radio. Vehicular accident. Female about 60. Unconscious. I relieved pressure from a pneumothorax. She's ventilated now. Abdomen distended. No bowel sound. A ruptured spleen, tamponated now by a blood-filled abdomen, he said. Multiple fractures. I've stabilized the spine. We'll need blood. The surgeon asked many questions. Hiram answered. What's your name? The doc asked. Peter Lake, Hiram said. Trained? Surgery. He wanted where I went to medical school, Hiram thought. Do I know you? I don't think so, Hiram said. They arrived in just under two hours. Kissy was taken immediately to the operating room. Winona arrived a half an hour after surgery began. I've got to go, Hiram said, shouldering his backpack. Take the van, Winona said. No, no, you'll need it. Can I reach you, she said. I wish, but no. I'll keep in touch. What about Kitsy, Winona asked. If she makes it through surgery, she's got a good chance of survival. Never the same, but she'll live. She needs you, Winona said. These are competent folk, and Kitsy needs you most of all. I can't stay but I'll be sure to be somewhere close until she's discharged. Not leave until I know she'll get better. Chapter 69 After Kitsy regained consciousness, it took her a few days to orient and think cohesively. When Winona arrived, as she had every day since the accident, Kitsy reached out to grab Winona's arm to guide her to sit on the bed. It's him, Kitsy said. I saw a wanted poster on the bulletin board when I was on a stretcher waiting for the surgery just before they gave me that anesthetic. Who, Winona said. Pete. His name is Mick something. Wanted for murder. Are you sure? It's him. I told hospital security. And what did they do? Well, they said they'd spread the word. Did you tell them about Winnemucca, where Pete stayed? Yes, of course. My God, he saved your life, Kitsy. You'd be dead if it wasn't for his kindness. 
Winona closed her eyes. It wasn't wrong, Kitsy said. He's a murderer. He's not, Kitsy. He's falsely accused. But convicted. Escaped from jail. It said so on the poster. He'll go back to jail because of you. I've got to go. I had to tell. I prayed about it. He was your friend, Kitsy. I didn't do no wrong. Winona gathered her belongings from the closet and under the bed. She put them in a shopping bag. Are you going to warn him? Kitsy asked. But Winona was out the door. Winona drove the van as fast as it would go. Four and a half hours later, she turned onto the dirt road at the trailer park. It was past midnight, the sky clear but moonless. Among the dark shapes of the trailers, three sheriff's vehicles flashed beams of red and white into the night. A fire department ambulance was positioned with the front end toward the trailer Hiram had rented. The headlights reflected from the aluminum siding. Winona parked as close as she could and started toward her trailer. A deputy stopped her, gripping her arm. She twisted away. Two men were sliding a body bag into the back of the ambulance. What did you do? She screamed at the deputy. He put up a fight, the deputy said. The sheriff got out of one of the cars and approached Winona. Best you don't stay here tonight, Winona, he said. I live here. I know that, but that man dead, Miss Winona. You the one that killed him? He got his due. He didn't have a weapon. He was shooting at us. Ask the deputy. He'll tell you. You lie. He didn't believe in guns. Best you don't worry yourself. I can take you down to the motel. Spend the night there. I'll do fine here, Winona said. It's a crime scene. Because you killed an innocent man. Best you rest, Miss Winona, the sheriff said. Max heard of the capture on the news and called Page in New York. He's dead. Oh, no, where, Page asked. Somewhere in Nevada. Are you going out there? Yes, I want to tie up loose ends. I'll go with you, Page said. It'll take at least eight hours. And get the daughter. Let the family claim the body. Won't he be considered escape from custody? Return the corpse to prison? I don't know, Max said, but I'll sort it out. And the girl will be helpful. Chapter 70 Paige arrived with Sophie at the trailer park in Winnemucca in a rental car from Salt Lake Airport. Max had already started her investigation. They sat cramped knee-to-knee in Winona's trailer. Can you tell us what happened? Paige asked Winona. They shot him, Winona said. He put up a fight, Paige asked. He wouldn't have resisted, Winona said. McDowell had five bullet wounds, Max said. I got to the coroner a senile retired general practitioner. Did he suffer? Sophie asked. No, impossible. Three wounds in the back, one through the chest, one to the head. He didn't have a gun, Winona said. I know that. Did you hear the shots, Max asked. He was dead when I got here. But you think the sheriff killed an unarmed suspect? The sheriff doesn't take prisoners, Miss Roja, Winona was crying. He's not a gentle person. Can you tell us how they found him, Paige asked. Max spoke up. Sheriff won't say, or the deputy. I asked them. My friend was in the hospital in Reno, Winona said. 
She saw a poster with McDowell's picture and told the authorities. And you came right back here, Paige asked, as fast as I could. You wanted to warn him? He was an escaped criminal. He was a human being, Winona said. And you were afraid for him? Winona bristled at the interrogation. Yes, she said. Did you know him a long time? A few months. And you never suspected he was a murderer? Never asked? Winona refused a response. Paige touched Sophie's hand. We need to get his belongings, she said. I'll take you, Max said. Winona followed Sophie out of the trailer. I'm so sorry about your father. He was a good man. Could I talk to you about it? I haven't seen him in years now, Sophie said. Lingering around the crime scene, Max asked if the police were around. A man said Sheriff had called police in Elko to investigate. They were on their way. Max whispered to Paige, Get his things before anybody shows up. Put what you can find in the trunk of my car. Then get Sophie to take photos of everything near and far. I'll start interviewing. The sun was up. Paige and Sophie found Hiram's backpack and his travel equipment. Then Sophie photographed the inside and outside of the trailer and the surrounding ground and took more distant views of the trailer park and surroundings. She joined Max and Paige to leave before the Elko detective showed up. Did we violate a crime scene? Sophie asked Max. They haven't established anything close to a crime scene yet. They aren't eager to preserve evidence, Max said. Sophie and Paige run in motel rooms. Max joined Paige and Sophie in Sophie's room to look through Hiram's possessions. There was no gun or evidence that Hiram had carried any weapons. I expected we might find notes or a diary, Paige said. We know he was writing more for his memoir. Ask that Winona woman. I want to be sure I find any witnesses to the shooting, Max said. It was after midnight, but Paige and Sophie returned to Winona's trailer. Winona listened to Paige and Sophie describe what they were looking for, notes or a notebook. There was nothing in the trailer, Winona asked. No. He did write sometimes down in the junkyard, a place he stayed for a while. Winona took Paige and Sophie across the four acres to the camping trailer. He stayed here, Sophie asked. When he first came, Winona replied, and then on and off he might sleep down here on a beautiful night or when there were strangers in the park. Sophie teared up. His life was not easy, she whispered. There were times when he seemed down, Winona said, but on most days he liked who he was and what he was doing. What did he do with his time, Paige asked. Traveled and wrote his memoir. Sometimes he helped me with shipping my paintings or setting up my supplies. Her voice was tinged with sorrow. They looked in the camper. There was a hinged door below a small sink. Inside, behind a collector tank, Paige saw written notes rolled up and fastened with a rubber band and a coffee can. They went outside into the light. This is it, she said to Sophie, his diary notes. Sophie held the notes and slumped down to the desert earth to sit cross-legged, tears blurring her father's handwritten description of his time since his escape from prison. Chapter 71 New York Paige carefully consolidated Hiram's notes into a narrative draft. Max was hired to track down as many witnesses to Hiram's fugitive years as possible. 
Max easily found the key influences in Hiram's life, and Paige interviewed each one. Some of the interviews were conducted over days as Paige got to know the individuals. Tressler then called a meeting with Paige, Sophie, Charles, and he included the CEO of the outsourced publicity agency he used, the firm's chief legal consultant, two assistant editors, and Mildred Cox, the present owner of the firm. You know why we're here, Tressler began. I don't, Harmon, Mildred Cox, the owner, said. You know, Mildred, it's the McDowell biography, Tressler said irritated with Mildred Cox's dismissive tone and her feigned innocence of the meeting's purpose just to be contrary. I'm not a writer, Mildred said. You're not much of anything except excessive inherited wealth, Tressler thought. I need your input, Tressler said to Mildred Cox. We'll be arousing criticism, calling attention to sensitive issues like right to life with this biography. I want you aware. No surprises when we release. He turned to the others. We've got to get this one right. You've all read this draft. What are the changes needed? Page stood up to address the group. We've retrieved McDowell's diary notes that gave great insight about his activities and thinking from prison until his death. I was able to interview many of the people he stayed with and knew during that period. With intellectual intensity, he searched for reasons for his decline, and he looked to building a new life under a new identity completely separate from the past. He became a compassionate person in ways that were antithetical to his past. I've restructured the biography to emphasize his enlightenment of a new way of existing. I wanted the biography to reveal his enlightenment, not to simply detail his foibles and wrongdoings. He was guilty of murder, society judged that. Stick more to the facts of the trial, legal said. I didn't get the draft, Mildred Cox said. We delivered it by courier, a junior editor said. Charles spoke. The problem is that no matter how detached we try to be from conclusions about McDowell's guilt or innocence of murder or euthanasia, with the new diary notes found at the trailer park where he was killed, he seemed to have changed from the life devoted to me he lived before the trial. He'd been intelligent, but self-absorbed with personal achievements and fame. He was so involved with his admirable image that his life became a selfish pursuit of wealth and recognition. Sophie did not feel confident about contributing to this meeting, but Charles' words gave her courage to speak. My father was a dedicated surgeon and caregiver who saved lives and provided better quality of health and living standard for hundreds of thousands of less fortunates. He was not selfish, she said. Some would think he had an arrogant disdain for humankind, an editor said. He didn't have many friends. That's your opinion, Sophie said. It's not the truth of what we know now. He's convicted of killing his grandson. That's pretty damn arrogant in the views of many, legal said. What's the point here? Sophie asked Tressler. I think Paige has created the fairest possible presentation of my father in the biography. Is this meaning for her to change it again? Tressler stood to look down at those around the table. Page's material from McDowell's notes after he escaped from prison is her best writing. He did change. He was smart enough to have hidden enough cash away for existing on a poverty level indefinitely without getting caught. And he began to think about his past, Tressler said. He made friends. He helped others. Page describes him as a man redeemed by genuinely caring about the people he engaged with, and he took some responsibility, at least for being the cause of his troubles. 
and many may feel that this is a troubling representation, that the evil is minimized. But that's wrong. It's a biography based on truth and not myth. This is not about whether murder or euthanasia was committed, Page said. It's about a human life, a life judged harshly by the public and the press. Well, the motives and means of McDowell's death will always be front-page interest, an editor said. Page has done well with that presentation, Charles said. You wrote most of that, the editor said with rancor. Charles continued. People will have preformed opinions about euthanasia or assisted suicide before they read the book. We can't change that. I've always felt we should be treating the writing of this biography as a coming of age. McDowell grew after his time in prison, Charles said. We didn't try to change a reader's opinion, Page said. We presented the life of McDowell, and euthanasia really was a minor part of that. You did, Tressler said. I believe the balance is right. Very little needs to be done with the manuscript. We will treat this as a coming of age, not the evolution of a murderer. I don't see what all this fuss is about, Mildred Cox said. In some ways, we should honor McDowell, Charles said. This is not about living life on the edges, on the top or the bottom. It's about discovering who you are. Biography has to deal with the truth, Legal said. Everything is true. Facts have been vetted, Page said. And the writing about McDowell's motives and actions is accurate, Charles said. It's how we choose the emphasis in what we write. It's not just describing events with statistics, narrative descriptions, societal judgments of what is moral and what is not. Well, that's just gobbledygook, Eldred Cox said. Of course we have to have the happenings, Page said. I've got that. But Charles is right, especially with the new material from McDowell's new friends. We can make this story about a failed surgeon who finds himself a way to make a new beginning with new perspectives and potential. A nemesis of hubris with a rise from the ashes, Tressler said. Who wants to read that? Mildred Cox asked. It's what's right, Tressler said. It's what we should do. Reveal the inner soul, Page said. We can do that with what we've got. He was looking at Charles. Redo what you need to. Vet it. Keep everyone in this room involved. Tressler glanced around the room. Will it work from the publicity view? Tressler asked publicity. Well, we can make it work. We'll have to revise all the copy, but I like the thrust of where you're going. We need to go for final approval with the board in three weeks, Tressler said. Be sure we're not vulnerable on any legal issues. Can I meet the author? Mildred Cox asked. Jesus, Mildred, you're looking at her, Tressler said, pointing to Page. Charles Gibson has provided invaluable support, Mrs. Cox, Page said. Mildred Cox didn't respond for a few seconds. A senior moment, Page thought. Well, at least someone is valuable around here, Mildred Cox said, staring vaguely out the window. Chapter 72 The McDowell biography was released and Tressler hosted the traditional launching party for authors, agents, reviewers, and friends of the firm. Page signed copies for an hour before her 30-minute reading. Charles sat in the front row of folding chairs lined in a square. Sophie stood behind the seated guest, admiring Page's reading voice. She had not seen Charles since Page had talked to her about his confessions to her. She refused to accept his calls. 
She couldn't bear to maneuver through a paper-thin conversation, avoiding all the feelings for him that haunted her and that hadn't decreased in intensity. She couldn't bear bleeding platitudes about ideas of claimed mutual disinterest while she really wanted to tell him of the pain of her longing to be with him, to share with him all that she felt and was. Paige returned to her table for signing books again after the reading. Sophie whispered in her ear her congratulations and thanks. She slipped out the front door. She shivered at the blast of cold air that engulfed her. She moved quickly to walk back toward her apartment. She crossed the street at the light. Charles startled her when he came up to her side. You can't avoid me forever, he said. I'm not avoiding you, she said. Really, Sophie? You can't tell me you haven't been avoiding me. He was a kind man. He was unlucky to care for her. She wished he'd never had to deal with her and her unrequited love. Let me buy you a cup of coffee, he said, pointing to a Starbucks across the street. Well, thanks, but I... I won't let you refuse, he said. They sat at a small, round table for two amidst a jangle of coffee machinery and the din of a coffee house filled with customers. I've got news, he said. I'm leaving New York. Her mind went blank with the shock of it, and she held back her tears and turned her head away. I'm going to build a literary journal of fiction for Pagelli, the movie director, in San Francisco. The surprise of his leaving was quickly replaced by the devastation of his no longer being near her. I want you to be managing editor, he said. She was overwhelmed. She clasped her hands and squeezed her eyes shut. Could she ignore the change in her life and profession? Could they ever recapture the camaraderie they had once shared in New York in a new city? Say you'll take it, Charles asked desperately. Her resistance collapsed. She pressed her fingers to her eyes to hold back her tears of happiness. I'll pay for moving expenses and rent for the first six months, he said. She led him out onto the street to walk side by side, hand in hand. You'll go? he asked. Sophie squeezed his arm. I love you, Charles Gibson. How soon do we leave? This ends the final episode of McDowell, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of McDowell and the iTunes Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliteraryfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.